Please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 18. From time to time, I will step out of our regular reading of the Gospel of Matthew, and on an evening with the Lord's Supper, a message from elsewhere in the Scriptures that heightens our focus upon what the Lord is giving us at the table. That is what we are doing tonight, and I've been doing some of my own reading and study in the passage we are about to hear read. Let us pray. Our God and Father, we do pray that it would please you to help us hear and understand and believe all that you have to say to us in your holy word. We confess, O Lord, that we are often ill-prepared to hear your word. We are very weak in the body. We are not often well-trained in the mind to hear a sustained discourse, even in the public reading of Scripture. Father, we are so thankful, though, that our weakness is not something we must lie about or lie to ourselves about, but it is something by which we can set at your feet and confess our need. And so we do. Lord, we pray that you would consider us not according to our readiness, not according to our preparedness. We certainly do regret that. But Lord, consider us not by it. Consider us according to he who is at your right hand, making intercessions for us as our great high priest. By his merit, his majesty, his mercy, bestow upon us the graces necessary to receive your word in every way that a child of God can receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Kings 18, verse 1 through 19. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. And Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, and when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself And Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say he is not here, he would take an oath of that kingdom or nation that 
they had not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you. I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid a hundred men in the Lord's pro- of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here and he will kill me. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. This is God's word. Beloved, the gospel lesson before us tonight is a lesson that comes from verse 3 and 4. It is a lesson about the bread of life. And the main thrust of the lesson is this. The Lord's love is so great and so warm-hearted and so hospitable and so amiable toward his chosen people, he will not forget them even while he brings his most severe judgments down in a storm of desolation upon the wicked. That's the lesson. What does the Lord do? What does he give as a testimony that his kindness toward his own people has not been weakened, has not become hardened, has not faded or declined? He gives bread. In the midst of a dry wasteland of judgment, Yahweh gives his own dear people the bread of life. That's what the Lord's Supper is. It is a table set before us by the Lord in the presence of our enemies. Psalm 23.5. It is a table spread by God in the wilderness. Psalm 78.19. The Lord's Supper is not a meal for a people who are at home. It is the bread of life for a pilgrim people, a a people not home yet, a people moving and pressing and looking toward home, but still surrounded by the barrenness of what Paul calls the present evil age, Galatians 1.4. It is in a world of barrenness, of evil that the Lord brings to our mouth bread. And it is not just any bread. It is the bread of life, and not just any life then, but the life of God, which is the very life God gives and the very life God keeps and the very life God guards and defends and vindicates. Now, what is before us in our text is arguably the darkest period that ever befell 
the northern kingdom of Israel. And if you know your history of the Old Testament, you know that the kingdom had become divided. The northern kingdom became known as Israel and the southern kingdom, Judah. The northern fell first to the Assyrians and they were sent into exile. We have not yet come to that when we are reading about the life of Elijah, but we are on our way. But what we are reading in these chapters and the precincts of chapters 16, 17, 18, and 19 are arguably the darkest period that ever befell the northern kingdom of Israel. And that has everything to do with Obadiah feeding a hundred prophets bread in a cave, as you shall see. Now Ahab was king and Jezebel queen. Mentioning those two names may be enough to persuade some of you that we are indeed talking about the darkest hour on the darkest day in Israel's history. Ahab was the worst king, and Jezebel the worst queen. And to help you see this more clearly and to persuade you if needed, listen to what the scripture says about the year Ahab became king of Israel. And if your Bible is before you, you'll benefit from looking up these passages. They're all just in a few pages. We must hear this to properly reckon with the action taken by Obadiah in bringing bread to the prophets he had hidden in the cave. So here here is the installation text of Ahab's reign. It's in 1 Kings 16, verse 29 and 30. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Ahab is distinguished (laughs) from among all the royal predecessors. He is distinguished as the worst of them all. This means Israel is reaching its low point. It is descending into its darkest hour. Now, hear what comes next. Right where your eyes had just settled, this from 1 Kings 16.31 and following. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings who were before him. Ahab not only was a terrible man himself, He married a terrible woman, Jezebel. She was the offspring of a devoted worshiper of Baal. And some scholars think that Ethbaal was first a high priest of Baal before he became the king. Jezebel's father was Ethbaal, which means with him is Baal. Jezebel was such a horrible woman 
Her name later became a placeholder to describe a sleazy, idolatrous, corrupter of all that is true and righteous in the world. In the letter to the church of Thyatira, we hear these words, Revelation 2.20, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, there wasn't a particular woman named Jezebel in Thyatira. Her, her real name, whoever she was, is not named. But the Old Testament Jezebel, her name is carried into the letter because it properly designates the kind of person she is. Ahab, the king of Israel, took Jezebel to be his queen in the promised land. And this only deepened and quickened Ahab's own leading of the nation into darker and darker idolatry. He builds a temple to Baal in Israel. He builds an Asherah, another idolatrous structure in Israel with the encouragement of his wife. But just when we thought we might be at the darkest hour, we then read this. 1 Kings 16, 34. In his days, that's a reference to Ahab's reign, because we are continuing. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Things are getting darker. Now, in his days, as I said, refers to Ahab. And the point that is being made in the text is that Ahab allowed or sanctioned or perhaps even commissioned the rebuilding of Jericho. What was the problem with rebuilding Jericho? Well, you heard the reference there at the end of 1634 to something once spoken by Joshua, the son of Nun. Joshua, back in Joshua 6.26, said these words to the people shortly after the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. Quote, Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. Well, sure enough, years later now, during the reign of King Ahab, a man named Hiel rebuilds Jericho. And sure enough, in doing so, his firstborn son dies when he begins, and his youngest son dies when he is done. The point is this. Ahab and Jezebel encourage men to honor that which Yahweh has cursed. Ahab encourages a man to defy the living God even though that man will lose two of his sons. Either Ahab did not know about the curse from Joshua, 
and thus was under the darkness of ignorance, or Ahab did know about the curse from Joshua and was under the darkness of malevolence. Either way, the rebuilding of Jericho in the days of Ahab shows how dark it is becoming in Israel. The leadership was not trying to flee the wrath of God. They were actively taunting the wrath of God and rolling back the gains for the blessedness of the promised land, rebuilding a city of enemies. This means they themselves have become enemies, the king of Israel, enemies of the living God. But then it gets even darker. This time, not by the wickedness of man, but by the looming judgment of Yahweh. In 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1, we read this. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. The prophet Elijah has been sent to inform the king Ahab that a terrible, terrible famine is about to come upon the land. In the end, this famine will last three and a half years before it rains again. No dew, no rain for three and a half years. Things become so desperately bad that the Holy Spirit is going to bring the church to look upon the pathetic situation of a widow in Zarephath, a village of Sidon. But before we look at that briefly, understand what's about to happen. Things are so dark with sin in Israel that the Lord is going to remove all moisture from the earth, from the air, from the bellies and bodies of men. Why do you think it is Ahab himself and his top steward, Obadiah, who are out looking for grass? Why isn't this the work of slaves? Why isn't this the work of middle management? I for, please forgive me, all you who are middle management. <laughs> Why is this the work of King Ahab? And Obadiah, his top servant, steward. Because everybody is dead. Middle management doesn't eat great in a famine. Slaves eat worse. They have all gone the way of the widow of Zarephath's husband. The judgment of God is falling. Darkness is falling. Wrath is falling. Why? Because Israel has descended into the very depths of decay. Judgment is falling. Well, what about the widow of Zarephath? The Lord has sent Elijah to her house. Why? Look at 17.9. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Now, that's supposed to make you chuckle a little bit. The Lord's sending Elijah to the very land from which Jezebel has come. And he is going to be 
fed by a widow in the midst of a famine? Well, this has not only got Elijah scratching his head, but me too. When Elijah arrives and asks the widow for water and bread, her replies come to him from out of the depths of woe. She says in 1712, As Yahweh your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Beloved, this is darkness in the extreme. Death is falling, not rain. Well, in a miraculous turn of events, both the woman, her son, and the prophet Elijah all survive by the kind hand of the Lord. The God who lives, as she said, the God who lives, Yahweh, is giving the bread of life to those whom he loves, even as judgment is falling upon the earth. But just when we think we have reached the deepest darkness, it gets darker yet. And this time it is not the wickedness of Ahab that gives us a new shade of black. It is the wickedness of Jezebel. We learn in 1 Kings 18.4 that Jezebel has cut off the prophets of Yahweh, the Lord. Now what this means precisely is restated down in 18.13 when Obadiah is in this private conversation with Elijah. Obadiah says, Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of Yahweh. How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. The darkness has deepened. Jezebel has ordered the execution of the prophets of Yahweh. She holds a bitter grudge against the prophets. She rightly has associated all of the prophets of Yahweh with Elijah. And it was Elijah who brought the message that there will be no rain for three and a half years. And in her rage, in her malevolent heart, Jezebel orders a slaughter of the prophets. And many die. Many die by the sword. And what does Jezebel do with all the false prophets? Well, she makes sure that they prosper, that they get fat during a famine, that they have more than their share. Look what Elijah says to Ahab in 1819. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. Jezebel kills the prophets and feeds the prophets. Which did she kill? Which did she feed? She killed those who spoke of salvation, who spoke of repentance. She fed those who said, peace, peace, all is peace. But let's go back. 
no, let's not go back. Let's go forward. So Jezebel protects, Jezebel provides for the agents of idolatry, kills the agents of salvation. The darkness is getting deep. Elijah does not even know at this point, 1819, he does not know at this point how many prophets and true believers remain alive in Israel. He actually says later that he thinks he might be the last true believer. He's going to find out from Yahweh in 1 Kings 19, verse 18, he finds out this, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. The Lord gives a secret to his friends. Just like Jesus said in John 15 to the disciples, there are 7,000 who I have kept. Did you hear that? I will keep them. I will leave. This is sovereign grace. But now I want to go back to our primary text. Now that I have sort of built up the picture for you. 18.3, which once again reads this way. And Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. Beloved, the gospel lesson here is a lesson on the Lord's table. Earlier, I described the lesson this way. The Lord's love is so great and so warm-hearted and so hospitable and so amiable toward his chosen people, he will not forget them. Even while he brings his most severe judgments down like a storm of desolation on the wicked. Beloved, this is exactly what we see with Obadiah and the prophets in the cave. And this is exactly what the Lord's Supper is. When did our Lord Jesus Christ institute the Lord's Supper? He did not institute it at the first Passover in his first year of public ministry. He did not institute the Lord's Supper in his second Passover in the second year of his public ministry. The Lord Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper the night of his arrest the night before the day he would be crucified is when he instituted the Lord's Supper. Why wait until then? Why not a week earlier on Palm Sunday? Why his last Passover? Well, maybe there are several reasons, but the big reason is simply this. Our Lord Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper on the last Passover, the night before he was crucified, to impress on his church that as judgment was about to fall on the world and on the devil and on sin, he was at peace with you and me. And not just a sentimental peace, but a peace by which his power toward us was for life 
not for wrath. That he would take us and hide us in a refuge, which is the word for cave that shows up in the Psalms again and again. That he would take us and hide us. He who fears the Lord, he who is a servant in the house of God, he who comes in the midst of a raging corruption and wickedness in the church of God, he would shelter us and feed us a meal of peace to testify to us that we are set apart from his wrath, set in a place of life forever. But what was this judgment that fell? What was this darkest hour? You know, it was the cross of Christ. Never forget John 12, 31. Never forget it. Now is the judgment of this world, Jesus said. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. He said that in the immediate few days before his arrest and crucifixion. The cross was judgment on sin. It was judgment on the devil. It was judgment on the world. But we would not find the cross a testimony of wrath against us. But it was indeed the very cave of life. It was where Jesus was indeed testifying to that which the supper signifies, that he would be the life of his people as judgment fell, that his bearing judgment for us would be the way he keeps us alive and to show that he doesn't regret it, that he doesn't resent it, that he's not begrudged it. He feeds us on the night of the judgment. For the wicked, it is lights out. The ruler of this world is cast out. Because sin has been answered, and everyone outside of him will then bear their wickedness. So let me just end with this point. Just as the prophets, who are the friends of God, just as the prophets could not survive without the supper, brought to them by Obadiah, the type of Christ, the Christian cannot survive without the Lord's Supper. You might think at first, come on, pastor. My fridge can hold enough food. I could go for years without the Lord's Supper. Beloved, you cannot survive without the Lord's Supper. Because the life that you would keep apart from ever taking the Lord's Supper is not the life that God keeps. But the life that God keeps, he keeps it by feeding you the body and the blood of his risen son. You see, the life that God keeps is not just a physical life in a world that is passing away. It is an eternal life in a kingdom that will never be shaken. And we will only continue unto that kingdom by the strength of him 
who is already enthroned in it. The body will only survive its pilgrimage into that kingdom's consummate glory through life in the head as he feeds us his body and blood. So what is the environment in which we take the Lord's Supper? It is the same in which Obadiah's prophets took bread. It is an environment of hostility and famine. How do I know this? Well, not only because Paul says this is the present evil age, but I know this because the world does not want to give Christ to you. The world does not want you to know God forgives sin, your sin through the blood of Christ. The world does not want us to be so strong in hope for an age to come that we take a narrow path of holiness through this present evil age. The world will not give us anything that even looks like the life that God gives us through the body and blood of his son. That means we are in a very barren world. But our Lord Jesus Christ gives us bread and wine to testify to you and me that we are set outside of his wrath and we are safe in the one life that God keeps forever. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Bless it to our bodies. Bless it to our souls. Father, we pray that we would be greatly strengthened in our faith to know how zealous you are in the midst of a judgment falling upon the world to testify to your church that we are at peace with you. And so you set before us a table in the midst of our enemies. You spread one in the wilderness and you, te- you set life before us again. And that life is your own beloved, your dear son, who you have given to us. And you have said, take and eat, take and drink. You shall live. We thank you that you are very pleased and zealous to give us the life of God, the eternal life that cannot fail. In Jesus' name, amen.